following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The rainforest is aflame. Now, sometimes you want to be clever. Or me, I mean. You know, we want to point out all that fun stuff in the world that's weird. We have a president whose antics could be said to lend themselves to this sort of analysis. But we have to say again and again, the Amazon is on fire. Yes, 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 chicken sandwiches, but Amazon fire. Sure, Gwyneth has a book consultant. His name is Thatcher Wine. But on the other hand, this from Judy Woodruff from the PBS NewsHour. President of Brazil conceded today his government lacks the resources to fight raging wildfires. The fires in the Amazon rainforest have increased more than 80% this year. But President Jair Bolsonaro had initially declined outside help. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron called for this weekend's G7 summit to treat the fires as an international emergency. Well, that's cause it is. 20% of the world's oxygen has been outsourced, essentially outsourced, to a protection racket guarded by a thug. It's Bolsonaro who called Macron's criticism a colonialist mentality. Well, what's your mentality, Bolsonaro? He's less than disinterested. He is actively inveighing against the rainforest. He's exploiting it. He's allowing it to be sold. He thinks it's funny. He revels in it. This isn't foxes guarding the hen house. This is Popeyes and Chick-fil-A being put in charge of PETA. Oh, God damn, there's the sandwiches. They got mentioned. Listen, if this doesn't get, I'm going to put a marker out there. 10 times the coverage of Cecil the Lion and 20 times the Harambe memes, then you're all on notice. You, people of Twitter who made the Harambe jokes, but do not care about the Amazon rainforest. Although, if you do, I mean, really, what can you do? That I acknowledge. But come on, this story needs massive attention, and it has everything you would think a story would need to get that massive attention. It has visuals, it has a villain, and it has dire, dire consequences. It's bad stuff, and it's unusual stuff, which means it's newsworthy. Anyone who has ever had their heart twinged a little by a specific animal in the news over the years, maybe a specific species, maybe you've donated to rescue because of a dog from New Orleans or a chimp or a cougar or a toucan. We're talking about an entire ecosystem here. We're talking about the whole planet. So please, the rainforest is on fire. Let us at least pay attention. On the show today, I spiel about the question, If you could barely keep a single thought in your head, can you concoct an intimation of dual loyalty? Seems pretty complex. But first, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon joins the show to talk about his fact-finding mission to the southern border that helped bring attention to a policy that was shocking, but also predictable. The facts on the ground and responses available with Senator Jeff Merkley up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. 
He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In May of 2018, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the government would be detaining and separating families at the border. My next guest needed to know what was going on. Luckily, he had the standing to investigate. He went down to the border, and he is a sitting U.S. Senator from Oregon, Jeff Merkley. His new book, America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families, talks about what he found out, what's going on on the issue of immigration and child separation, a little bit about his history and how he comes to the strongly held belief. Senator Merkley, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It's wonderful to be with you. So when you have this inclination, I need to go, what is the step between that and you knocking on the door at a facility in Brownsville and actually being denied entrance? Well, when I read the speech, the zero tolerance speech uh, by Jeff Sessions and attorney general, I thought, well, you know, it sounds tough on crime. You know, you'd expect this of a Republican administration six months before an election. And as I read the details, I, I was just uh, stunned because I said, it sounds like they're, they're actually going to harm children as part of a political strategy. This can't be the case, not here in the United States of America. And uh, somebody on my team, as I was expressing, I'm sure they're not going to do this, said, well, there's one way to find out. Let's go down to the border and check it out. And, and I thought, that's, no, that's right. So that Sunday I, I, I flew down and thus became the first member of Congress to get into the processing center, see the children who were being separated from their parents. They showed me the door that they brought them through and separated them, see these little boys and girls in, in these 30 by 30 foot square cages in a warehouse and just go, oh my God, I can't, I cannot believe this. Do they not understand what they are doing to these kids? And then just a few hours later, going up to Brownsville, where uh, an ACLU advocate had told me that, that he had heard hundreds of boys were being stuffed into a Walmart. Uh, and yeah, former Walmart. Former and the, Walmart. the report was 1,000 uh, boys were being stuffed yes, into Walmart. And, and I did a Facebook Live standing outside saying, I'm knocking on the door. I'm trying to get in to find out what's going on or at least have them come out and brief me. Uh, and even as I said, I've heard that a thousand boys might be inside this building. I said to myself, I shouldn't be saying that. That's mm -hmm. impossible. Well, I didn't get in. 
They called the police on me. That was really advantageous because it created more drama around the secrecy of what they were doing. And then because of that Facebook Live that went viral, the administration had to let the press in. Ten days later, I brought a uh, congressional delegation down. Fourteen days later, we got in, and it wasn't 1,000 boys. It was 1,500 in one building. When, uh, it, it's just unbelievable. So I want to go back to the original thing that you said to me, the original statement, which is in the book, too. You said two interesting things. One, oh, I think uh, this is obvious to me they're getting tough on crime. But it's not crime. It's asylum seeking. It's just being treated as crime. And so that's different. That's a huge break no, from uh, not only tradition, but law. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, you hear zero tolerance. It just yeah. If you don't know what what that means. It just sounds like tough on crime. How does the word tolerance and asylum, those are two words that don't go together, right? No, no. <laughs> Zero absolutely. tolerance and asylum. I, no, asylum yeah. is all about our commitment under our federal law and under the, uh, the refugee convention that if somebody is fleeing persecution, uh, we will let them across our border so that they will not be brutalized. Mm-hmm. And that means you actually have to let people across the border. Right. So on that second trip on Father's Day in, in 2018, uh, June 17th, I went to the bridge there between, it's in near McAllen, it's called Hidalgo and the Mexican side of Reynosa, uh, went to that. And what I saw were three Border Patrol officers or Customs and Border Protection officers, CBP officers, standing on the bridge at the line blockading people who were refugees from stepping across the line. This is a violation of, of, the, of the convention, the Refugee Convention. Because and, people should know, and the president has said that you have to give yourself up for asylum at a designated port of entry. That's exactly what they were trying to do, and government officials, U.S. government officials, were trying to prevent that. No, that's absolutely right, and to dramatize it, as we came back off the bridge, uh, there were virtually no people, there were no people in the interview rooms, and, they, and, and I said, well, why are you blocking people? Oh, we're so overwhelmed. I said, well, your interview rooms are empty, the CBP facility looked empty earlier today. They said, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, it's a whole pipeline challenge we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this was the beginning of metering. Uh, And so there was one room there with about a dozen people in it. And I said, well, are there any families in this, any uh, that uh, have come across? And they said, what, that you let across? And they said, oh, yes, there's one, uh, there's a woman and her her, uh, her daughter. I said, can we speak to them? So this woman comes out holding her 56-day-old baby in her arms, Andrea. Uh, the mother's name was Gabriella. And so through a translator, we, we held a conversation, this congressional delegation conversation with her. And we, we said, well, you know, why did, why did you come? And she said, well, it was like this. My family took a loan from a private bank, probably meaning a, a drug cartel mm-hmm. or a gang. And we hoped to repay it, but we weren't able to. And we were told if we couldn't repay it, I would be the one who would be killed. Yes. And um, so I thought I was safe as long as I was pregnant. So by the time I'm eight months pregnant, I hadn't been able, the family hadn't been able to repay. So they're going to kill me, kill my baby. I fled. I delivered the baby en route. It took three months to, to get here. And I said, well, so you were able to cross the bridge because you had a baby in your arms. And the CBP officer said, okay, you can come. She said, oh, no. I was turned back into Mexico three times. And she said, I was desperate because, and, you know, she, 
explain the vulnerability that you have. No friends, no family, no, mm-hmm. no funds, uh, predatory gangs across the border. I said, well, how did you get here? And for just a moment, her face lit up. And she said, oh, she, she said, here's how I did it. She said, there are two bridges. I saw the pedestrian bridge. I'd been turned back three times. But there and there's an automobile bridge. And people were on the bridge washing windows uh, with squeegees. So I went, I borrowed a squeegee, I washed a window, I came one car closer to the U.S., washed another window, and washed windows into the United States of America. That's how she got in. So if you ask, and they have asked every presidential candidate, of which which you almost were one, but then said, you know, I'd like to heal the Senate. Good luck with that, by the way, and we'll talk about that. They will say, well, what we shouldn't be doing is cutting off funding to Honduras and Guatemala. That's absolutely true. But even at times of funding, is, was that really making so much of the difference? Is the difference between Costa Rica, which is a highly functional kind of ideal society in touching the borders of a couple of these countries, and the difference between that and Guatemala or El Salvador, was the difference the amount of U.S. funding that was given? It seems like that's just a, one of many factors and not the determinant one of which countries fall into chaos and which are functional. So the, the Obama administration uh, said, we need to do what we can to, to strengthen the institutions. And so uh, Vice President Biden took charge of this, uh, developed a program called the U.S. Strategy for Central America. It was to reinforce a, a program that the government signed on to in those three countries. And it addresses uh, corruption, commerce, and just kind of basic essentials in the economy for people to to survive. That program, initially Obama asked for a billion dollars a year. The first year he got $700 million, and not all of it got delivered. There were caveats put into place. That has dwindled down to maybe closer to $300 million, and all that hasn't gotten delivered because of a series of blockades uh, and um, conditions. Compare that to the remittances to those three countries. Those three countries last year had $17 billion in remittances. So this, even this $300 million, if it was all distributed in these three categories, it's a very small piece of, of the puzzle. We spend so we billions and billions of dollars on the border. We're not spending billions trying to help stabilize Central right. uh, America. And, uh, it will take a lot because now through the four, two forces that the drug cartels bring to bear, the first is money, which they can bribe their way and corrupt the institutions. And the second is force. Uh, you're, if you're not with us, you're against us and you may die. Your family member may die. We may gang rape your daughter. I mean, that's so they have a very powerful uh, force. And The biggest success we had was with an anti-corruption commission for their political institutions. And that, we had a complete consensus in America supporting it. But Guatemala hired two sets of lobbyists, one in Florida and one in Indiana, to pressure senators from Florida and the vice president to say, lay off the, the corruption commission because it's disrupt their, their argument was, hey, this is disrupting our economy. Uh-huh. So when we were down there, a lot of the, the folks said, you know what? We will never solve these problems if we don't have the anti-corruption commission. Uh, the, the, 
the word impunity is used. Uh, a whole class of people who have gone for generations without accountability. And then you have the drug cartels without accountability. So we've got to have this anti-corruption commission. But the president of Guatemala says, oh, they went after my son. Mm-hmm. They went after my brother. And he got together with the business community to undermine American support and succeeded. They spent 80000 a month on these two lobbyists, so these two two lobbying firms. And those lobbying firms went to work, and suddenly there's Republican senators standing up and saying, I don't think we should support the, the anti-corruption commissions down there. Well, let's go back to, remember I said there were two things that you said, and one that I wanted to highlight, so we talked about tough on crime. But the other, you said, do they understand what they're doing? That's my question to you. Do they understand what they're doing? I don't just mean the enormity of the uh, of the I- immorality they're perpetuating. Is there a coherent strategy and could it possibly work in terms of what they're doing with family separation and some of the other cruel measures at the border? They have a theory. Uh, and I guess you could say that they have stayed with this theory throughout the Trump administration. Uh, and the theory is if we treat refugees in a horrific way, it will deter immigration. Yeah. It is a flawed theory. When Gabriella was fleeing to save her and her unborn child, she wasn't worried about what happened at the border because she, if she didn't get out of there, she would have died. Right. And uh, uh, the uh, young woman that I, uh, Albertina and her daughter, uh, Jacqueline, who I invited to the State of the Union, uh, she fled because she had been brought into by force, essentially a uh, combination of gang and domestic violence, and knew that her daughter coming of age, her daughter was turning 12 on the day of the State of the Union. It was her 12th birthday. She knew her daughter was on the verge of being drafted into this kind of sex slave role. So she fled to save right. her, her child and so forth. Because the point is, not just whatever cruelty can spring from the mind of Stephen Miller, and I said it and not you, but if you want to sign on, you can, cannot cannot compare to the horrors of many of these people in Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador. Exactly. And so that's why it's a completely flawed theory. Plus, I mean, people don't far away don't know exactly what things are going to be like I, when they, when they don't even know if they'll make it to the, to, the, to the border. I have done a little study, and it seems that border crossings from Mexico are entirely correlative to the United States economy, and border crossings where they originate in the triad are extremely correlative to the murder rates in those countries. And it doesn't really even matter what policies the United States has. Well, and you think about the murder rate is extremely high in those th- three countries. Uh, we, we have um, a, a, a rate that is about an eighth mm-hmm. uh, nationally of yeah. what, is, what is happening there. And then you have malnutrition. They've had three years of drought. You have a failing coffee production. You have failing corn production. Uh, So people are fleeing uh, villages and they're experiencing malnutrition and stunting. The the, the State Department showed me a picture of average nine-year-old Guatemalan children in Guatemala versus those same set of children who had come to the U.S. Six inches of height different for nine-year-olds. Yeah, I bet there's an Um, IQ difference too. It does. It does affect the development of the mind, uh, this type of uh, malnutrition and, and stunting. And so you, you, 
combine, (laughs) these are a lot of factors at work. You have a a high birth rate, uh, which is, means a lot of people are coming of working age, but without jobs. One estimate I saw was that uh, uh, for everyone who needs a job, for 17 people who need a job, uh, who come of working age, one, there's a job for one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a pretty desperate situation. And what has happened just recently with the Flores decision? So the administration is constrained by a court decision that says you cannot lock up children for more than three days. You have to move them expeditiously into a state-licensed care facility or into a home, and they don't want to do that. Now, that court decision has not yet been applied to influx facilities like Notorious Tornillo and Homestead uh, facilities, but it will. I'm pretty confident it will be. I think it's before the court now, uh, but it has been applied to the internment camps, so it is is blocking uh, the ability to detain children with their parents, which is what the administration's biggest goal has been since June of 2018, is to establish a vast system of internment camps across America, locking up families for the duration of their legal proceedings, which can go on for years. This is exactly, what, what term can I use to capture. I mean, it's horrific. The idea we're going to reestablish internment camps for the long-term indefinite detention of children and their parents. And people say, well, uh, doesn't the administration have a point because people won't show up for their hearings? And the answer is no. Uh, We had a family case management program. As long as there is a case manager who knows all their contacts, who's in continuous contact, alerts them to their hearings, people show up. There's been two inspector general reports. Both cases, it's 99 plus percent people show up to their hearings, and it costs a fraction, somewhere between about a 20th to a 40th per day. So vastly less expensive to have a case manager than to have a prison. America is better than this. Trump's war against migrant families is the book. It is not just a hundred yard removed story of one legislator's opinion on this. Senator Jeff Merkley goes down to the border. You meet immigrants. You meet, he interviews the workers in these facilities, much like a reporter, you know, he does so without judgment and you find some interesting people. Senator Jeff Merkley, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, You're welcome. And I really appreciate you putting a highlight on the book because the point is we need a spotlight on this diverse set of immigration policies which can seem very complicated so I wanted to have one place where people could understand them and understand that we have to, when you see massive human rights violations by our government, we can't turn away. We have to stand up. We have to fight it and it's going to take a lot of Americans doing that together and thank you so much. Senator Merkley, good to meet you. And now the spiel. A few days ago, Donald Trump, our president, Donald Trump, said Jews should vote Republican out of loyalty. And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. The Cognoscenti didn't even jump on the fact that it should be, I think, any Jewish people who vote for a Democrat. No, there was something deeper and worse than that. The president was asked, wait, Loyalty? 
a great disloyalty? Do you mean loyalty to Israel? Because if that's what you mean, that is the old canard that Jews have a dual loyalty. No, 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 it wasn't that. We mean like uh, loyalty to themselves or their sense of righteousness, the Republican Jewish coalition said, adding on Twitter, quote, we take the president seriously, not literally. President Trump is pointing out the obvious. For those who care about Israel, the position of many elected Democrats has become anti-Israel. Also, I took it to mean, <laughs> I love playing the what does Trump mean game. Maybe it meant that Jews were disloyal to America, which I guess would be okay. I mean, it's not, but better than claiming the dual loyalty thing, because if an American Jew were disloyal to America, at least that is the country that that Jew is supposed to be loyal to. Then came yesterday, and Trump made it clear that no, 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 I was talking about the dual loyalty thing. For people to come into our country illegally. I think that if you vote for a Democrat, you're very, very disloyal to Israel and to the Jewish people. To me, this is like when during the primary, Donald Trump stupidly said, well, you know, if abortions are illegal and if a woman gets an abortion, then of course they should be prosecuted as a criminal. Then he found out that's not what you say. I don't think he was ever clear on why that's not what you say, but he went out and he tried to clean it up just because he offended some people who are part of his constituency. He's not trying to clean this up now because he's glad that he offended the people that he offended. In fact, that's his one superpower. You can't ask Superman not to use the x-ray vision. To try to get into the old meatloaf head that he's got going on there, I would say he doesn't understand why Jews wouldn't be loyal to Israel. He doesn't know that it's an anti-Semitic way of thinking, maybe because he has a somewhat anti-Semitic way of thinking. He certainly doesn't care if it's an anti-Semitic way of thinking or historically an anti-Semitic charge because that would mean he'd have to care about history. He does not care one whit about the idea that maybe we shouldn't turn Israel into a wedge issue. That's all he does. That's his superpower. But, and this is where I'm not going to defend Trump, but I might say a couple things that I've been thinking about that, no, no, add a little context. So one is, I think the dual loyalty is an anti-Semitic trope idea is not exactly as horrific on its face as many of the other anti-Semitic tropes. It seems to me you have to teach someone a lot about why it would be anti-Semitic, and yes, historically it has been. It's just not the gut reaction to that among people who might not know about anti-Semitism wouldn't be anything other than, well, if you say so, I'll back off, but it does seem a little more complicated than that, and yeah, it does, and here's why. It seems to me that a dual loyalty charge is more resonant if the country that you're implying the person has loyalty to is an enemy of the United States. If you charged a Cuban-American of dual loyalty or an Iranian-American of dual loyalty, that would say something horrific. Maybe even if you accused a Greenlandic-American of dual loyalty at this moment of time, that would go slightly far. But Israel and the United States are as aligned as two countries can be, two countries that weren't, say, a satellite state of the Soviet Union and the USSR. Israel and the United States are aligned 95% of the time in the United Nations. No country votes with the United States more than Israel. No country votes with Israel more than the United States. Micronesia does pretty good, by the way. Loyalty to Israel, whatever loyalty means, is so close to the official position of the United States that it's hardly a smear. I mean, if there's any disagreement among American Jews, 
It is from those who criticize Israel. In fact, a lot of Jews do. It's hard to find an American Jew who supports Israel more than official American policy supports Israel. The spy Jonathan Pollard did break some national security laws once upon a time. I will acknowledge that. The president isn't technically warning, oh, we should watch out for the Jews because they're overly patriotic with Israel. He's criticizing the Jews who, in his feverish mind, are under patriotic as far as Israel. It is dual loyalty in a way, but what he's really doing is accusing them of having not enough dual loyalty. He thinks they should have 100% dual loyalty. It is insulting to the Jews, just not in the exactly precise dual loyalty way of your. Now, let me take on the claim or the implication that there is any legitimacy to connecting Democrats to disloyalty to Israel. And why should an American have loyalty to another country, which is what he's saying? But why should the Democrats be susceptible to a charge that they are sufficiently non-supportive of Israel? It rests on the fact that some members of the squad are Democrats and some members of the squad are anti-Israel. Here is how Ben Shapiro, observant Jew, put it on his show Tuesday. A Jewish belief and practice should, in fact, make it very difficult to vote for a party that celebrates and champions Jew haters like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Undoubtedly, yes, it should be much harder for people who care deeply about religious and philosophic Judaism to vote for a party that makes common cause with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, just as it would not be ridiculous to say that it's very difficult to suggest that Jewish belief and practice would allow you to vote labor in Britain. A party that has steadily moved away from Israel, which is connected to Jewish belief and practice, a party that has not only undercut Israel, but undercut religious liberty in the United States, that has favored specific groups, if those groups are, even if they're targeting Jews, like Omar and Tlaib are, the intersectional coalition, that is throwing Jews outside the circle of victimhood for their own political purposes, there is nothing wrong with saying that philosophic and religious Judaism makes it very difficult to vote for the party that does all of those things. Well, I don't believe that Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are literal Jew haters. I think they certainly oppose the state of Israel. I know they do. And that is, in my position, the wrong position and not just my position. That's the overwhelming position of Democrats. They disagree with Omar and Tlaib and AOC, but not necessarily Presley, because we're talking about a vote where 17 Democrats voted in favor of the BDS movement the boycott, divest, and sanction movement. So if you haven't been following and there's a bit of a double negative, let me explain what this resolution was. Brad Schneider of Illinois put forward a resolution condemning the BDS movement. Now, since the BDS movement is a condemnation, if you condemn a condemnation, there's the double negative. But anyway, it works out like this. He wanted to have a vote that says we shouldn't boycott, divest, or sanction Israel. 17 members of Congress, 16 of them Democrats, disagreed. They said either we should boycott, divest, or sanction, or at least the United States should not be telling people what to do as far as it comes to boycotting. So, okay, they got 16 Democratic votes not condemning the BDS movement. But you know what votes were on the other side? Every other Democrat in Congress. And there are 235 Democrats. By the way, the Congress is a very hospitable place to Jews. There are about triple the amounts of Jews in Congress as as there are Jews in America. And guess what the partisan breakdown is? 24 of the Jewish members of the House of Representatives are Democrats. Two are Republicans. So 
I guess we now have to believe, if we cast our lot with Ben Shapiro and our president, that the anti-Semitic thing to do is to condemn the party that accounts for 92% of the Jews in the House of Representatives. As my family says, or at least half of them, oi! The president, as with so many things, doesn't know and doesn't care what he's doing. It is true that the presence of a couple of extremely anti-Israeli politicians is a little unusual, and it's disturbing. If you value Israel as an ally and a quite imperfect democracy with an imperfect history, like our own country, by the way, it's disturbing. But what's much more unusual and more disturbing is the president of the United States saying such incendiary things with so little information. But then again, why is this issue different from all the other issues? And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They're thinking of organizing their books, but they don't know whether to hire Cooper Wainwright or Alistair Cranberry. The gist, Jeff Merkley fun fact. In high school, he was assigned an extemporaneous speaking proposition, quote, Oregon will turn into a pot-smoking Mecca. And a young Jeff Merkley did not know what Mecca was. But here's the thing. If you were in Mecca, you wouldn't be allowed to smoke pot, would you? Upro de Peru and thanks for listening.